You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and director of FSI. Today, we're talking about one of the most polarizing topics in American politics, gun violence. And this debate is about to heat up. The Supreme Court has decided to hear perhaps the most significant gun rights case of the last decade, and House Democrats have unveiled a landmark background check bill. All of this comes in the wake of the worst year for gun deaths in two decades. Here to discuss the constitutional right to bear arms and how gun violence continues to impact the health and safety of Americans is Professor David Stutter, professor both of medicine and law here at Stanford and a core faculty member at Stanford Health Policy uh, within the Freeman Spogli Institute. Uh, David, it's great to have you on the program. Great to be here, Mike. So let's begin with the big question, the obvious big question. Firearm ownership is higher in the United States than anywhere else on the planet. Our firearm death rate is also the highest. Correlation, causation, what's the relationship between those two sets of data? Yeah, well, that is a big question. Most experts in the field think that it is more than correlation, that there is a causal relationship between those two things. And you're absolutely right about the two facts, about 55 million Americans own a gun. 55 million. 55 million, about wow. one in three households in the United States has at least one gun in it. Now, it varies tremendously. In a state like California, it's more like one in six, but in, in your home state of Montana, it's it's more than one in two. Um, yes, so, I think my father owns five. Okay, all right. So <laughs> that's another interesting fact about gun ownership. Among people who own a gun, the average number is five, actually. Oh, so he would be right okay. right in the middle of that, that in either. that distribution. Okay. So they're, they're very common, and that's much, much more common in civilian hands than any other country. And the United States does have a higher firearm mortality rate than any other country. About 100 people a day. So last year, it was nearly 37,000 people died of firearm injuries. And we do think that there is a relationship between those two things. But to, to understand the relationship, you have to kind of break down firearm violence and firearm yeah. injury yeah, into help. its sort of constituent parts. Yeah, so, do that. That's great. So about two-thirds of firearm deaths are firearm suicides, and most of the rest are firearm homicides. And then there's a little sliver of accidental gun deaths, deaths from things like uh, police shootings and mass shootings, which get so much of the public attention. But it's actually a small it's, fraction. It's a, quite a small fraction uh, okay. of all of these deaths. And they're very distinct problems. So firearm suicide is something that cuts across the socioeconomic gradient. Most at risk are uh, white men like us, Mike, uh -huh. uh, across, again, across the age span. Across the age span. Uh, so it's, it's not just young. No, it's not just young folks. In okay. fact, the risks are a little higher in the 40 to 50 year old um, okay. age bracket. And it's a complicated problem. Uh, many people believe that uh, people who want to end their life will find a way to do it, and uh -huh. guns are merely the instrument. The research evidence suggests otherwise. Most uh, studies have shown that many people who attempt suicide do not go on to die by suicide. Other studies have shown that the amount of time that people think about a suicide act before they commit it is five to ten minutes. So it's an impulsive act, wow. and in the context of an impulsive act, it really matters what means you use what? to attempt that of act. That's a shock. I did not. That's a shocking number. How five to ten minutes? It's it's a very it's a very impulsive act. It's usually during a moment of crisis, right. and even among the mentally ill, which are is a is a risk group for suicide, it tends to be an impulsive act. So 
The fatality rate for people who try to kill themselves with a gun is about 90%. For people who use other means, it's much, much lower. Right. Uh, so an interesting factoid is that women actually attempt suicide more than men, but have a much, much lower uh, suicide rate because they don't use weapons. So experts believe that there is a relationship between the availability of means, a firearm in the house, and the probability that one who enters such an impulsive moment will, will end their life. Right. Uh, firearm homicide is in many ways, a different problem. Okay. Uh, yeah, and there are really that. sort of two pockets of firearm suicide that public health people worry about. One is an epidemic of violence among young men, particularly young black men in right. inner city neighborhoods, right. urban areas. And that's a problem of gang violence and illegal gun use. Uh, the other form of homicide that public health folks worry about is domestic violence. And in this form of gun homicide, intimate partners are really the at-risk group, particularly women. Uh, mm -hmm. So they have an elevated risk of firearm homicide uh, from domestic partners. Right. And that's always, again, more serious when there's a gun in the house because there's no going back from that escalation. And in those the are argument. moments of impulse and drama. They are. And what are. Uh, within the homicide, non-suicidal deaths from guns, what percentages are, are related to domestic violence versus this other kind of violence you described? Yeah, the most... The biggest pocket is uh, gang violence and and, okay. and and young young men, but uh, about forty thirty to forty percent of firearm homicides are among people who who know each other um, wow. in a domestic setting. Uh, so it's a very significant proportion. Uh, and again, the mantra in public health circles is means matter. To strike someone with your fist is very different than pulling a trigger. Yes. And so what happens to be around and available at a particular time can have a very serious impact on the outcome. So that's why uh, researchers have come to believe that there is a relationship between mm -hmm. the prevalence or the density of weapons and then these very high rates of, of firearm death. And we're, just to be clear, we're a huge outlier amongst other OECD countries or, or all countries in the world. The United States is? Yes, by uh, almost an order of magnitude higher than any other country. There are other countries that have relatively high rates of firearm ownership. Uh, Switzerland is one. Israel is another. But it's a very different form of firearm ownership. It's tied into their national uh, military Defense. service. Right. And very strict rules attend how those weapons are stored and, and used and so huh. forth. Okay. So it says in my notes here, you don't like the term gun control. Explain why. That's interesting. No, I think that sort of gets the conversation off on the wrong foot. Uh -huh. You know, I, I'm not a gun-free nut. Uh, you know, I grew up in Australia and my extended family lived on a farm and, and okay. I grew up around rifles and uh -huh. that was a standard thing that farmers used and, and needed. And right. I think that's true in the United States as well. There are different forms of gun ownership for different reasons. Right. And I say people who like target shooting and, and hunting and uh, using guns for their jobs like farmers, that's not something we should uh, interfere with lightly. But most gun violence is not born from those situations. Right, right. Uh, the key, the, the center of the problem of gun violence is, is in urban areas with handguns. And most of the people who own handguns in cities own them because they think they make them safer. And that is not what the evidence tells us. So if you, if you ask people why they buy guns, uh, about 70% will say 
to make their household safer. Same. This is among handgun buyers. Right. And uh, about three quarters of belie- people believe that having a gun in the house uh, makes the house safer. And those views have actually increased over the last 20 years, which is very perplexing mm-hmm. because at the same time, evidence that a gun in the home makes you uh, at risk of firearm injury and death has increased. So there is a sort of mismatch there between public attitudes and beliefs and motivations and what the evidence is telling us about firearm risk. And that's actually what drew me into the area to try to reconcile this paradox. Well, I want to talk about that in a second, but before I do, just on the normative part, obviously, when we think about the right to bear arms, we just to take an absurd case, you don't have the right to buy a tank. Right. You don't have the right to buy a nuclear weapon. I guess that's not a gun. So there's a spectrum. Right. As a society in America, we've decided that certain weapons should not be purchased, but it runs out pretty quickly. Right. And is that even an effective way to talk about it or does that get people in the gun control mindset very quickly in terms of attitudes towards gun ownership? Yeah. So I think the term also to come back to your earlier question, the term that I prefer is gun safety because I think if we, if we talk yes. about if we talk about guns, they are an item that is hazardous, um, right. and when used in a certain way, that's the way that we approach prescription drugs. Right. Um, that's the way that we approach certain poisons that you right. can buy in hardware stores. So, I, I kind automobiles, of, for instance, automobiles. Right? automobiles safety, again, right. we have to be licensed to drive those. We right. can't drive them until we're of a certain, certain age, age. Right. Uh, and that's not true for guns in many states in the United States. So I kind of come at this from a fairly agnostic point of view, a public health point of view. It's it's an instrument of danger at some level. And and so we take certain precautions in society to try to prevent those, right. those hazards. Well, that's already a big conceptual pivot, gun safety. We should get more people to talk that way. But let's that, that leads me to the, the next question, which is when I think, you know, I'm not an expert, but I think of other moments in history where we have succeeded in changing societal attitudes, right? I think of smoking as an obvious big one, but even back to automobiles, right? You, you mentioned I grew up in Montana. You know, we're, we have a pretty strong libertarian streak in Montana. We don't like the government to tell us what to do. And yet uh, when I grew up as a kid, that's when seatbelts were introduced. And there are still some people, including my father, now that I think about it, that still doesn't like to wear seatbelts. And yet we have changed societal attitudes on that. It's just become... Everybody has, as a matter of course, you get in the car and you look for a seatbelt. So why hasn't that happened with gun safety when the data is, as you said, I think pretty convincing? And then give us a sense of how those, maybe those metaphors, historic analogies are not appropriate. But if they are, what might be some ways that we might have a similar kind of public policy campaign about gun safety? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I I think gun safety in the United States is different to those other things that you raise. I mean, the the, the analogy that I like to use is, uh, you know, in Australia where I grew up, the thing to do right after school let out in high school, I I went to high school in the late 70s and 1980s, was to uh, coat yourself in baby oil and get out in the sun so you could get that really sharp tan really? going early in the summer. <laughs> okay, and, right. you know, so we would walk around sunburn for the first few weeks of the <laughs> summer. And within 10 or 15 years, that became a really socially unacceptable thing to do because right. the awareness of skin cancer was so much higher. Right. And very quickly, there was cultural change there, just just in my early huh. adult years. That's uh, another great example, yeah. And, and I think cars are a good example too. I think part of the answer, 
and this is perhaps me being hopeful, is that the evidence isn't as good as we would like it to be and okay. isn't as good as it was for automobiles when, right. when Ralph Nader began his crusading um, right. or for skin cancer when that culture change happened. There's a lot we still don't know. And part of the reason is that there hasn't been the federal support for, for research funding in this area. Right. It's lagged tremendously. So there are, there are questions in the world of gun safety that we really don't have good answers to, but we would like to. For example... What are the risks imposed on others in a household when a male, usually it's a male, chooses mm -hmm. to buy a gun? Uh, we don't really have very good estimates uh, for that. Uh, if you think about smoking, what blew open, one of the things that, that blew open tobacco control and, and tobacco policy was understanding that the decision to smoke imposed risks to and, others. and damages to, right. to others. That's uh, a great point. And so we don't quite have the evidence in the world of, of firearm violence to make those connections yet. But I think there is something culturally different about firearms okay. in the United States and Americans' attachment to firearms, which I don't fully understand as an outsider. Right. I'm intrigued by. <laughs> um, I'm interested in learning about. Uh -huh. uh, but I don't think it will be quite as sharp a tipping point uh, as we've seen in some of those other areas. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, or at least tiptoe around that a little bit, because that's now getting into the politics, right, um, and the interest groups that advocate. This is interesting. I didn't know about the research dollars that are constrained. Maybe that does have to do with the interest groups, and I'm using very diplomatic words here. Yes. Uh, yeah, let's talk a bit about that, and, and both tell me your perspective of the politics of gun safety. Uh, and the right to bear arms, and, and particularly also how the Supreme Court rulings have shaped our debates in this country about those sets of issues. Yeah. Let, I mean, let's start with the Supreme Court. It's interesting that when it comes to a discussion of politics, we go we go to the Supreme Court. You know, as a law professor, yeah, I like yeah, to yeah. think about it as a separate <laughs> right. branch. But in this particular area of public policy, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very heavily politicized area. Uh -huh. The Second Amendment of the United States, as you know, presents a right to keep and bear arms. Until 2007, that right was not understood to be connected to civilian ownership of firearms. Uh, I didn't know that. The Heller decision of the United States Supreme Court changed that overnight, and a slim majority of the United States Supreme Court struck down Washington, D.C.'s strict set of rules around handgun ownership Huh. Uh, on the basis that the Second Amendment said that was not possible. Now, the court didn't say, as some people have interpreted, that no gun regulation of any kind was possible. It noted several examples, such as keeping weapons out of the hands of the mentally ill, that would be permissible, but that a lot of the regulation that had grown up in places like California may be constitutionally suspect uh, because of the Second Amendment. Uh, a subsequent decision of the court in McDonald uh, struck down a similar law in Chicago, which made it clear this wasn't about the federal enclave of District of Columbia. This was about all state the laws. Entire country. So that set I off. I didn't realize it was so late in our history. It was a very recent, That's, very recent uh, development. Wow. Yeah. So this set off a cascading uh, series of cases, which are still unfolding across the country where uh, gun rights groups are attacking uh, state and municipal laws that restrict firearm ownership um, in various ways. Uh, the Supreme Court, as you may have heard, has, has recently agreed to hear a case that is going to get at a second issue in the, in the Second Amendment, and that is the right to bear arms. There is a case uh, moving to the court now that has to do with the transportability of guns outside homes in New York. 
and that will be heard by the court in its next in its next term. So, tell us a little more about the facts of that case. So, New York City has enacted a series of very strict laws about how privately owned guns can be moved around the city, okay. and restricted it essentially to to commercial dealers. And the question is, is that unduly limiting the rights of citizens to bear arms? I see. Uh, so there's the keep and there's the bear. The keep are these previous cases that the courts have heard. Right. The bear has to do with transportability. Now, what people are most interested in is not this somewhat peripheral law in New York, but the question of whether people can carry arms. So concealed carry has been a major flashpoint in gun violence debates. Right. States vary a great deal in how permissive they are in letting people carry firearms around. In California, in most parts of California, it's extremely difficult to get those kind of permits. In other states, they're given out almost as a matter of right. So there's tremendous variation in how states approach that issue. And the Second Amendment's bearing on it has not been considered by the court yet. I see. So that means that if they decide to increase the rights to bear arms, then some of these California restrictions could be overturned? Is that? Unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. Uh, The other thing that could happen is that Congress could, the current Congress is unlikely to do this, but Congress could in theory step forward and say that these more restrictive states need to respect the laws of the less restrictive states and federalize the area. And then federalize it. That's sobering. That would lead to a lot more guns out in public all the time. Yes, and and that already exists across the country in different states uh, where these so-called shall-issue laws are in place. Uh, So University of Texas campus uh, got some attention in the past couple of years because it decided, the state of Texas decided that it was permissible for students to carry weapons on campus provided they had the permit and, and lawfully owned the gun. Wow. What about the rights of the rest of us on that? I mean, if somebody walked into my classroom with a gun, I, I would not feel comfortable to sit up there and teach. Yeah, I mean, I this don't get any rights. This is how other countries think about gun ownership. Okay. They're much more attentive to the imposition on third parties. Traditionally, the United States has not approached parts of the United States have not approached gun laws in that way. But again, I think this is a place where evidence could really help. If we better understood what extent, what negative externalities guns imposed on others, whether they be women who live with male gun owners right. or students who sit in lecture theatres with uh, fellow students who are carrying, I think these are very uh, valuable areas of research. I mentioned earlier that there hasn't been a lot of research. There is a sort of de facto moratorium on gun violence research funding from the federal government. This began in the late 90s. It's not written down clearly, but there was a move by Congress to defund the CDC, uh, and the amount it was defunded was exactly the amount of money it was spending on on gun research. Is that right? And so no other federal agencies have really really touched that area. Well, on that very negative note. Let's end on a positive note. Maybe one of our listeners, maybe one of our billionaire Silicon Valley listeners uh, might step in to fill the void because obviously we here at Stanford, we at FSI, what you're talking about, this is exactly what we should be doing, right? Evidence-based policymaking we should aspire to. And given that the politics don't allow it from the government, maybe there's a role for 
for non-governmental actors to play? Is that a possibility? I think that's I think that's a distinct possibility. The foundations have tried to step up here, but okay. it's hard for them to really meet the demand and the need for research in this area because it's expensive research, right? Just to to do it at to to answer the really big questions, right? It requires large scale research. Well, I wish you well. And raising that money to do that research. I mean, seriously, what could be more important for me personally as a citizen of this country? I I find it this data is scary and horrible. And we need to think about it in in health terms and in safety terms. I, I mean, even the discourse that you've shared with us today, David, I think is really useful for the rest of us who want to engage on it. So thanks for joining World Class. That's a pleasure, Mark. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.